Father God, again, I just pray that you are pleased. I pray that you are pleased even with our laughter, Lord, with our joy. Lord, I I pray that you are pleased by our worship. Lest we forget, Father, this this service, even this morning, it's all about you. It is for you. It is by you. And Lord, as we now just consider what your word has to say about the resurrection, may your word sink deep into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls. Lord, may we comprehend and understand. May these words serve to draw us ever closer to you and your Son. And Lord, may we seek to put the truth of these words to practice in our lives. And again, we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 20. The book of John chapter 20. I'm imagining that there's, I believe, Bibles in the pew racks there in front of you as well. The Gospel of John chapter 20. You don't have to look any further than the headlines to be reminded that we are living in a very strange and even difficult world. It is a world that experiences much destruction and even death. Of course, things like coronavirus has led the way in terms of infectious diseases. But in the last year or so, our world has also been plagued by things like natural disasters. We have seen massive earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, cyclones, typhoons, and flooding worldwide that have killed thousands. In the U.S., we have had hurricanes, wildfires, and tornadoes. And along with these, there is also the very obvious presence of evil. In the last year, we have witnessed terror attacks in Afghanistan, West Africa, Myanmar, Iraq, and Mali, just to name a few. And of course, there is the very obvious hostile invasion of Ukraine by Russian President Vladimir Putin, now a war criminal. There's also been a proliferation of human sex trafficking and prostitution enterprises worldwide, including right back here at home. And speaking of the home front, we have seen our share of hostile takeovers. We have seen things like the CHOP area of Seattle, along with violent riots and looting throughout our country. Our nation continues to see the political and social divide deepen and become even more polarized. On things like the abortion front, many states have allowed for late-term abortions and some allowing for full-term abortions. I read literally what yesterday I think it was that there are some states with proposed legislation to terminate the life of a baby even up to 28 days after they've been born. Some states like California are also looking to make themselves sanctuary states and possibly paying for travel, lodging, and procedures for people from other states if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. 
And where things like gender are concerned, we are now told that we must not refer to pregnant women, but rather pregnant people. One of USA Today's Women of the Year this year is Dr. Rachel Levine, the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, who is actually a man. We also have people angrily protesting a recent law in Florida to keep instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity out of the K through third grades. And of course, we have our share of terror, including the man who recently set off a smoke bomb and then opened fired in a subway car in Brooklyn, injuring 29, 10 of those with gunshot wounds. And at a mall in Victorville, California, recently, a nine-year-old girl was hit multiple times by stray bullets while waiting in line to have her picture taken with the Easter Bunny. And frankly, the moral fabric of our nation is simply unraveling at breakneck speeds. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, what does all this have to do with Easter? Pastor, what does this have to do with Resurrection Sunday? Oh, it has everything to do with Resurrection Sunday because it begs the question, where is the hope? Where is the hope? I mean, really, friends, is there any hope to be had in such a mixed-up, crazy, topsy-turvy, sin-cursed, sin-filled world? And, of course, the simple answer is yes. Yes, indeed. To be sure there is hope. There is, in fact, much hope to be had. And hope is exactly what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. Amen? Amen. So in our text here of John chapter 20. John chapter 20. You ever skip to the... uh, Are you one of those people you like to skip to the end of the book? You you, you get a book and you go, I just can't wait. I mean, I'm going to read the whole thing, but I got to know what happens. I skip to the end. Shame on you. No, not really, because that's what we're going to do right now, okay? We're going to skip to the end of chapter 20 here of John. We're going to look at the whole chapter, and well, you go, oh my goodness, that's going to take... No, it'd be just fine. But I want us to go to the end of John 20, picking up in verse 30 to 31. Uh, I'm not going to have you stand for this whole reading of the text, but let's go ahead and stand right now for the reading of these couple of verses. John chapter 20... This is verse 30, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This, friends is the word of God. You may be seated. Basically, that's it. I mean, now we could call the service and just go have brunch and whatever. I mean, that's kind of the crux of it, right? That, that, that's the important stuff. You know, you're dismissed. Uh, have a blessed Easter and go enjoy your families. Except I see that you are all dressed up in your Easter best and you look great and, and all glory to God. So maybe we should go ahead and, and spend a few more minutes 
to just understand a little more in-depthly this tremendous story of life and hope from this 20th chapter of John. And as we do, friends, I want you to come away this morning with, with, just with this. Without a, a shadow of a doubt, I want you to know where your hope, your hope, is to be found. Now, if we were to look at John chapter 20 uh, in the sense of like a, a movie or a play or something like that, then, then we could break it down into scenes. And, and we might break it down into five distinct scenes. And if we were to give these scenes names, the first scene, we might call this a perplexing discovery. A perplexing discovery. John 20, look at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. I want to share just with you a little bit about Mary. This is from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary about Mary Magdalene. It says, quote, we know little about this woman other than that her name indicates that she was from Magdala in Galilee. Somewhere in Galilee, she met Jesus who cast seven demons out of her. She then joined the band of disciples and followed Jesus wherever he went, ending up in Jerusalem at the foot of the cross when all the male disciples had fled. She observed Jesus' burial and witnessed the events surrounding the resurrection. Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke 24 group her with the other women who went to the tomb. John says that she was the first among these women to discover the empty tomb, the first to report to the disciples, and the first to see the risen Christ as she lingered by the tomb after all the others had left. End quote. One thing's for certain, friends. Women were important to Jesus. Very important to the Father in heaven. Just look at the leading part that this woman, Mary, played in this resurrection account. Now, just to do a a quick recap on our timeline here, Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon. His friends wanted to get the body down off the cross before the Sabbath started. Follower Joseph of Arimathea offered his tomb for Jesus' body, and the body was placed there, Wrapped up in the linens, of course, with a large stone rolled in front of it that was then sealed with Pilate's authority. And Roman soldiers were placed there to guard it for the Jews. They wanted it guarded, concerned that Jesus' disciples may try and steal the body in order to perpetuate a story that he had resurrected from the dead. So here we are, the first day of the week. Sunday, Sunday morning, just like we are gathered here because of that. The third day since he was crucified, because any part of a day counts as a full day in the Jewish timeline there. It's still dark outside, but the Sabbath is considered over and Mary is eager to get to the tomb with some spices that she had for Jesus's body. Which we get from Luke's account. In fact, there are three other Gospels that give accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And I just want to tell you this up front, that my purpose and point this morning is not to compare and consider all of the different Gospel accounts. We're rather going to just focus on John chapter 20. And, And if I need something that's, I think, pertinent from one of the others, I will certainly bring that into view. But the we're just going to focus on this one account this morning. 
In any case, Mary gets to the tomb and this gigantic, heavy, circular stone has been rolled away and the tomb is open. And what does she do? Look at verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter. In other words, she sees the stone open. She doesn't go in. The assumption there is that saw something happened here. And the assumption might also be that Jesus is probably not there. If the, if the stone is rolled open, maybe somebody stole his body. Who knows? She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Well, there it is as to what Mary thought. And this obviously infers then that, that maybe she did peek inside to see that he wasn't there. And you might have noticed that she said we. And according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there were at least three women that showed up together. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Possibly there were others. But John just focuses on Mary Magdalene for the reasons that you will see in just a few minutes. Now, Simon Peters, the leader of the disciples, and this disciple whom Jesus loved is who? John, right? And, and, and the gospel writer, John. And by the way, that is not a, a, a him being prideful. It's actually him being incredibly humble that he never wanted to mention himself by name. In any case, Mary probably is in a, a somewhat frantic or, or excited uh, way about her. And she tells the men what she and the other women have seen. Their reaction, look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to the tomb and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Of course, that would be John. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. You might be thinking, why? Why, 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 why didn't he? Well, just imagine if you're in John's position, this whole thing could be a little disconcerting to say the least. You're expecting to see the tomb covered up and the tomb is open and, and rolled back and who knows what might be inside. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. He just blows by John and he saw the linens, linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which, cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rather fold up in a place by itself. The plot thickens. Now, what might be some of the possibilities of what was going through Peter's mind? I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, okay, let's see. No Roman guard. The guard's gone. The stone is rolled away. There's no body. But in place of the body are the linen wrappings that were used to, to wrap his body up for burial. There's the separate face cloth. But this is actually rolled up separate from the linens. Huh. Okay, could be that someone broke in and stole the body. But that would mean that they would have had to have overpowered the Roman guard. They would have had to have gotten the stone rolled away. But then the question would be, why would they take the time to unwrap a dead body? I mean, wouldn't it be just more likely and a lot pleasanter if they would have grabbed the body, linens and all, and just got out of there? 
And to top it off, who would have taken the time to have rolled up the face cloth separately? You can almost imagine Peter saying, uh, John, John, you, you, you've got to come in here and see this. You have got to come in here and see this. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. Well, this begs the question. What did he believe? What did he believe? At first, we might be inclined to think that this means John believed in Jesus' resurrection, his, his coming back from the dead. I mean, didn't Jesus explain this to the disciples multiple times? He did. But I don't think that's what John means when he says that he saw and believed. Because look at what verse 9 says. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And in Luke's resurrection account, The women returned to the disciples from having been at the empty tomb where they were told by some angels that Jesus is not there, but is risen from the dead. They tell these things to the disciples. And then we read this in Luke 24, 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Now, this all makes sense to us when we consider some of the times when Jesus predicted his death, his burial and his resurrection, and how the disciples were just utterly confused by these times. Peter even saying in Matthew 16, 22, after Jesus told him these things, and he says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. John 12 and verse 16 tells us that the disciples didn't even understand what was being done and said at Jesus' triumphal entry back into Jerusalem until After he had been resurrected. So all of this to say at this point in time. We have to remember these were not men of understanding as to what was going on. They were they were not optimistic hope filled men. So what I believe that John believed in verse eight along with Simon Peter was simply what Mary had told them that indeed Jesus wasn't there. They both probably believed that Jesus' body had been stolen. That just would have been the most likely understanding at this point in time. So then, look at verse 10. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Perplexed, no doubt. But one person lingered behind. One person stayed a little bit longer And this is where Mary Magdalene takes center stage. We have our next scene, a touching reunion, a touching reunion. Look at verse 11. But Mary, we might put in parentheses there, who had followed them back to the tomb, meaning John and Peter. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying and they said to her woman why are you weeping and she said to them because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him and when she had said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there 
and did not know that it was Jesus, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Oh, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, it would seem that Mary recognized the two beings inside the tomb as angels. We might assume she knew them to be different or special as they are described as being dressed all in white. She doesn't seem to mistake them for the gardener the way that she does Jesus. In Luke's gospel, they're described as appearing in dazzling apparel, at which Mary and some other women that Luke reports as being there becomes terrified, bows her face to the ground. Now, one of the reasons God sent these angels was certainly to offer information, but also to reinforce the fact that the body was not stolen by grave robbers. In any case, Mary voices her concern about where Jesus' body is when she either hears or senses somebody behind her. She turns, and it's Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And who knows, maybe that's because of the tears and and just the, the emotion, the emotional state that she was in. And maybe it was because of her last image was of him, his body bloodied and broken on the cross versus this dramatic difference here with this this glorified body maybe he was simply in the shadows so to speak you know of the the early dawn darkness whatever the case she doesn't recognize him but instead thinks him to be the gardener for the tomb area and she wonders if he moved the body for some reason and where it might be that she could go and get him Then all Jesus has to do is say one word for this woman to know exactly who he is. Mary. She turned to him and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Oh, what a moment. Oh, don't you just want to ask Mary what that was like when you see her in God's kingdom? And there's much thought and debate as to what exactly Jesus means by this command to stop clinging to him because he has not yet ascended to the Father. The King James translates this as, touch me not. So some say it has to do with his glorified body, that, that it shouldn't be touched because it's in the midst of, of changing or something along those lines. I don't believe that's the best translation because Jesus, of course, would spend 40 more days in this condition before he ascended and showed very clearly that his body was a physical body that could be touched. In fact, he invited people to touch him and he drank and ate in front of them. 
Others say it was Jesus's way of telling Mary that she must not cling to him in the sense of don't get too attached to me because I will be leaving again to return to my father in heaven. And I just don't think this also makes a lot of sense because it it seems to be spiritualizing the text in a way that just goes above and beyond normal interpretation. And in fact, one of the principles of interpretation is that the simplest meaning is usually the right one. I think what you have here is a grieving woman who so deeply loves her Savior and who suddenly recognizes him and is instantly overwhelmed with the truth of his resurrection. And she just just probably falls to her knees and grabs on onto him for just all she's worth and she is not letting go and she is crying and she is weeping with intense emotion and she's just gripping onto Jesus. In fact, the meaning of the Greek word there for clinging is is to handle in such a way as to exert an influence upon something. In this case, her to exert influence on holding on to Jesus. And who knows how long this might have gone on for. Maybe some time before Jesus very lovingly is able to calm her down and say to her in what I imagine to be the most gentle and loving of ways, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Meaning I am not leaving you Mary in the next little bit of time to go back to heaven. I am not going to to permanently disappear in the next few minutes or hours or even few days. To which he then says, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. And so after Jesus' resurrection would be his ascension. But again, Jesus isn't giving them a time frame. For instance, when Jesus said in John 10 and verse 18, I lay down my life on my own initiative. He didn't mean it was at that precise moment that he was laying down his life, but that he would lay down his life when the time was right. Same thing here. Furthermore, this ascending to the Father is something to be understood as currently in process for Jesus, which makes sense in that his physical body has already undergone this miraculous change, which is in line with his eventual ascension and return to heaven. In other words, with his glorified body, this physical world is now no longer his habitat or his abode as he will be returning to his heavenly home with his father to be with his father even though that would still be some 40 days from then but what's even more important about what jesus says here and what is implied in what he says is a change of relationship with his followers did you catch that he said my father and your father and my god and your God. In other words, there were now some incredible shared privileges between Jesus and his followers. In Romans 8 verses 16 and 17, we find out that believers are now called what? Children of God. 
and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 11 says that we are all from one father. For which reason he, meaning Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. So in summary... This is Jesus telling Mary, go to my brethren and tell them that you have seen me and that with my resurrection comes my ascension back to the father. But I also want them to know, I want them to know that we are all brothers and sisters and share in the same privileges of God, our father. And of course, friends, these same privileges include resurrection And to live with the Father in His heavenly kingdom. And not just for His followers back then. But for all who believe and put their faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at verse 18. As we close out this scene. Mary Magdalene came. Announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. I mean, just, you know, again, put yourself into Mary's shoes. Can you imagine here running back to the disciples to tell everyone of her amazing and unique experience? (laughs) I have to wonder what was going through Peter and John's minds too, right? Wait a minute, we were just there. We didn't see any angels. What's going on? That takes us to scene number three, an amazing revelation, an amazing revelation. Look at verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Oh, friends, this gets very interesting at this point. So here it is. Later that Sunday evening, it's still the first day of the week, and the disciples have locked themselves in this place that they were staying, which includes the upper room. This was because they were in fear of the Jews, which makes sense because they were all witnesses, right, uh, to the Jews killing Jesus. And so it would be reasonable for them to think that, okay, you know what, look at what they did to him. They may be coming for us next. They may be coming for us, his followers, as well. In any case, the text says that Jesus came and stood in their midst. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that he knocked on the door. Or even that he came in through the door. But rather, he simply stood in their midst. He appeared or materialized, however you want to put it, before them. He will do this again. And he will do this again at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, when John writes that Jesus manifested, literally made himself visible again to the disciples. Now, I, you know, I'm not trying to go Star Trekky here with you, okay? But But what we start to see from Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are some characteristics of his now very amazing glorified body. Meaning it is his body, it's the same body that he lived in prior to his resurrection, but which is now, you might say, new and improved. 
new and very improved. It now has some extraordinary properties and capabilities. And remember, this is what God promises to all believers. That you and I, as far as we are believers by faith, we too will be resurrected and we too will have glorified bodies. Oh, there is so much we could say on this subject. I had like two other pages worth. I'm like, oh, I just got to yeah, be another time, another time. But, but, but maybe the best way just for this morning for us to understand this in our limited time today is to just simply consider Jesus's glorified body. After his resurrection, his glorified body kind of becomes the blueprint, if you will, the prototype for our resurrected bodies. For instance, his body was thrashed. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, the, the, the Mel Gibson's The Passion or Passion of the Christ, whatever it was called there. And, and I, personally, I think that's probably more, more accurate than what we see in some of our paintings where you see just this little dribble of blood. You know, I, I believe he's probably covered in blood, coated in blood. His body was thrashed, ripped, thrashed, and now it's repaired. Yes, he will maintain some of the markings, right? And that could be, too, that that was specifically to show them back then that it was indeed him. But he's also recognizable as Jesus in his glorified state, both physically as well as vocally he could also eat and drink because he will do that people of course could touch him and yet we see that he has no time space limitations just gone it was in every way human yet with these awesome human or heavenly properties revelation 21 and verse 4 speaks of our glorified bodies in the new heavens and on the new earth when we are told that quote there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away friends your glorified body will not get sick it will not get the the latest coronavirus because there will be no coronavirus or any kind of disease let alone die and experience any kind of pain there will not even be any sort of emotional sorrow or shame as there will be nothing to grieve over and no temptation towards sin so that being said let's get back to our text where we see the first thing jesus says to them when he appears in this locked room is what peace be with you and you think that would be a good thing to hear right after what they just saw I mean, Jesus manifests, appears before them. I think I would want him to say something like that too. Peace be with you. It's kind of like what we, uh, you know, we always hear from the angels. The angels appear and what do they say? Do not fear. Do not fear uh, or, or do not be afraid. Why? Because that would be a scary thing to see an angel. Come on. That would be terrifying, I would think. Look at verse 20. And when he said this, that's peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Because he knew, friends, they would probably be thinking, are they seeing a ghost? Are we seeing some kind of apparition? What are, they, what, what are we seeing? Who is this man before us? So he proves to them right away, boom, I am the Lord. I am the same. And they rejoiced. And I just think again, oh, can you imagine being in that room? Can't wait to have these conversations with the disciples. Pressing on, pressing on. We next see Jesus exhort and commission the disciples in their duties and begin the process of giving them a 
helper. Look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Let me just give you four, four quickie things here about this, this brief passage. One, you can imagine the disciples might have been, again, a little bit freaked out at the events of the day. So Jesus seeks to calm their hearts with these two greetings of peace be with you. Secondly, he reminds them, That they have a purpose in fulfilling God's plan. That he is sending them out into the world as he will further commission them when we get to Matthew 28, 19 to 20. When he commissions them to, of course, make disciples of all nations, baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then number three, he does this thing of breathing on them. He, he is giving them a pledge, a pledge of the Holy Spirit, which they will receive fully and completely on the day of Pentecost. That we see in Acts 1 and verse, uh, Acts 1 and 2. And then number four, and lastly, when Jesus says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, They have been retained. This is not saying that they have been given some kind of special power or authority to do this for how are sins forgiven. They're forgiven through the gospel of Jesus Christ by believing in him, by having faith in him and what he did and accomplished on the cross. But rather, Jesus is telling them, That as far as they preach the gospel message of forgiveness of sins, and that message is believed by faith, then there is an assurance that people's sins are forgiven them. And of course, if they will not believe, there is an assurance that there will be no forgiveness of sins. Yes, Christianity is exclusive Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. This takes us to our fourth scene, a challenge of faith, a challenge of faith. At this point in chapter 20, John's narrative makes a time jump. It goes fast forward eight days uh, ahead where the apostle Thomas now steps into the spotlight. And Thomas as we also learn from our, well, if you, if you did a, a study on the 12 disciples, you, you might come to the understanding based on other scriptures about him that, that, that he was a heartbroken man. I believe that he was, he was tore up over Jesus's crucifixion so much so that he basically secluded himself from the others in his grief. Now, we all deal with grief differently, don't we? I do believe that Thomas dealt with it by removing himself from the group. Look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, that just means the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, referring to that week before. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
And of course, what is the moniker that Thomas has received for this apparent lack of faith? Doubting Thomas. Now, again, this is personally, personally, based on my own study of Scripture and the the other Gospels, I, I don't really believe that Thomas should be singled out for his lack of faith. Thomas is actually the one who exhibited rock-solid faith back in John 11, verse 16, so much so that he was prepared to die with Jesus if the authorities came after Christ as they approached Jerusalem just prior to raising Lazarus from the dead. And in addition, we've already acknowledged that none of the disciples truly understood or believed in Jesus' resurrection at first. They all had doubts. And it wasn't that, that Thomas's doubt was, was greater, but, but maybe just that his, his love for the Lord was so deep and his sorrow so intense that, that this was just what was kind of blinding him, if you will. In any case, we get to verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, And stood in their midst. Yes, here's another reference to Jesus' glorified body not being constrained by space. And he said, peace be with you. The same greeting as before, for I would imagine the same reasons. And verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be believing, excuse me, do not be unbelieving, but believing. That was all he needed to hear. That was all Thomas needed to see and hear. Because Thomas answered, verse 28, and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. This is Jesus' call to faith, friends. He is pronouncing a special blessing on those who would believe without having physically seen, met, or heard Jesus, which would be all of those from his ascension onward. And to these of such faith, Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This brings us to our last scene. In this story this morning. Number five, a call to believe. A call to believe. Let us return back to those verses we read at the beginning, verses 30 and 31, when John writes, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life 
in his name. Friends, you and I may not have the benefit of the physical presence of Jesus and all of the extraordinary things that he did, including the miraculous, but you do have the benefit and blessing of the gospel. The blessing of the gospel writers who carefully chronicled Jesus' ministry under the power and influence of his Holy Spirit. And this for the purpose that you would believe the gospel truth of Jesus, the good news truth of Jesus for the purpose of having life. Life in his name. So friends... And loved ones, the question that you need to ask yourself this morning is if you believe. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that He came as the God-man, 100% man, but 100% divine, and that He went to the cross to bear the burden, bear the weight of all of our sin upon Himself, that He would become sin for us, that He would would be the perfect sacrifice for our sins because of Him having lived the perfect life in our place, that perfect life that we could never live? And do you believe that not only did he die, that his blood was shed for you and that his body was broken for you, but that three days later, he gloriously resurrects from the grave? He is the only person in human history to ever have done that. Will you believe? Do you believe? And friends, as we close this morning, just let us go back to our original question. With all the death and destruction in the world, is there hope to be had? Unequivocally, yes. Yes, there is. There is much hope to be had. There is amazing hope to be had because Jesus resurrected And because he resurrected, so will all of those who believe. There is indeed life over death. There is everlasting, eternal life with Christ and the Father in his heavenly kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. There is your Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you and praise you. What could we do, Father, but just stand here and praise your name for the hope that you have given to us through the resurrection of your Son? That is what Christianity hinges on. And Father, if there is any here today, even one person maybe they are new maybe they are a visitor maybe they are somebody who has sat in these pews for years and years and years and have not yet given their life to your son jesus have not yet acknowledged that they are a sinner in need of a savior 
And without that Savior, there is only death and eternal hell and the lake of fire. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That today, as Ian said, would be the day of salvation. That they would repent and believe right now. As I'm praying, they would be praying that prayer of repentance even silently in their own hearts to You, Father. And that they would leave here with every hope. Tremendous hope. Because there is always hope in the life to come. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.